Colossians 3, I'll read just verses 18 and 19, and then I'll read from Ephesians 5. Uh, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So we'll pause there, and then we'll turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll read from verse 21. Ephesians 5, verse 21. catching it in midstream here submitting to one another out of reverence for christ wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is head of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Now, most of you know that today is a four-part, the fourth part of a four-part series on marriage. And even as I was preparing this week, I, I, I have a sense that though we've been in the subject for four weeks, uh, we all know that we've barely scratched the surface. Uh, we didn't look at 1 Peter 3 that explains how a spouse can live with a, a spouse who's disobedient to the word. Uh, we didn't look at 1 Corinthians 7 that has instructions to the married and the unmarried and the widows. Um, There's other passages about divorce and remarriage we didn't look at, and there's others we missed besides all those. With all the things that have been written about marriage and spoken about marriage and the scriptures about marriage, uh, again, this is a lifelong topic, and that's one of the reasons why I'm suggesting that particular book in your bulletin. So I'm hoping, and my prayer is, this has built a foundation for all of us just for further study as we learn and grow as to be the couples that God's requiring us to be. If you haven't heard parts one through three, I just want to encourage you to take the time to get caught up and listen to those online. And today we're going to wrap things up by drawing our attention to husbands. Uh, Every preacher uh, who preaches has to preach to himself first. Uh, This one in particular, I'll just be honest with you, is extremely challenging, extremely convicting, and I hope will be challenging to you as well. Last week, we spent all of our time on Colossians 3 and directed most of our attention to wives submitting to their own husbands. And we did notice in verse 19 of Colossians 3 that husbands are to love and not be harsh with their wives. The things that we drew out from that is that the command to not be harsh uh, is partly because in general, generality, husbands can be harsh with their wives. And of course, the command for the wives to submit Uh, would also mean that in general, wives have a hard time submitting. The whole point we've been making all along is sinners marry sinners, and when two self-willed sinners come into a marriage relationship, 
uh, there's obviously some issues. As we move today to Ephesians 5, and you can turn there, I just want you to notice four things. Uh, Four things in particular for husbands to lovingly lead. Number one, husbands are to lovingly lead sacrificially. Sacrificially. And I'll say these again too if you're writing them down. Secondly, husbands are to lovingly lead spiritually. Spiritually. Thirdly, husbands are to lovingly lead wholeheartedly. And then finally, husbands are to lead, lovingly lead permanently. So we're going to deal with being sacrificial, uh, leading spiritually, leading wholeheartedly, and then finally leading permanently. And I'll mention them again as I go. Now, I read specifically from verse 21 of Ephesians 5 to just set the context with the idea that I brought up last week of this idea of mutual submission between husbands and wives, parents, children, masters, and slaves. This mutual submission does not mean that husbands don't lead, but it does mean they don't lord over. It does mean they don't dominate. I said last week that a wife submitting to her own husband, as verse 22 states, is not the same as the obedience a child has to a parent or the obedience a slave would have to his master. Mutual submission is working together in the marriage relationship where two are becoming one flesh. So all thoughts, all ideas, all opinions are openly shared as a wife voluntarily submits herself to her husband's leadership and a husband is submitting himself to to the care for his wife with love and without being harsh. Last week, we defined wives submitting or ranking underneath or following their husband's leadership. That it doesn't mean they're inferior to them, but simply following the God-ordained order that was established prior to sin entering into the world. And that's what Paul's referring to here, I think, when he states, out of reverence for Christ in verse 21. He goes on in verse 23 to give the reason for wives submitting. He says, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. A husband is head, or to lead his wife, for the same reason that the Lord Jesus is head of the church. Uh, A husband's leadership was established before the fall, just like Christ's leadership over the church was established in eternity past. It's just part of God's order. And, And quite honestly, if this verse is all we had to go on, If this passage, all we did is stop here. The husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. If that's all there was, then we can conclude that Paul's emphasizing authority, he's emphasizing power, and he's emphasizing a strong hierarchy as he places the husband as king of his castle, as lord of his home. We can go home, we can beat our chest and tell our wives, I am the head of you the way Christ is head of the church, so make me my breakfast and bring me my slippers and bring me my pipe. I'm going to sit down and rest. But if you're thinking, then you've got to have to pause and ask the question, what does it really mean that Christ, as Christ, is head of the church? And notice that Paul actually explains this. He doesn't let us even question or doubt. He explains it with the next phrase. As he, as is himself, its Savior. You see, the emphasis that Paul's making here as it pertains to the headship of a husband doesn't seem to be an authoritarian. The emphasis on headship is sacrifice, denying oneself, giving one's life, dying so others can live. How else can you explain is himself 
the Savior, we know, of the body. Of all the different aspects and titles and, and all the different attributes and functions of the Lord Jesus, the one Paul chose when he made the comparison between leadership and responsibility of a husband in the marriage is the term Savior. Now, he's not saying that husbands are the saviors of their wives. He's not implying at all that we can save our wives from sin. That's not what he's saying. But he's using Christ's role and his title as savior, he's using that as a metaphor to say that the leadership a husband provides is a leadership of sacrifice, not one demanding dictatorial obedience. And if there's any doubt that that's what Paul's talking about, then verse 25 elaborates on what he means by stating, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, his headship over the church is on account of him suffering as Savior. His loving the church is demonstrated by him giving himself up for her. Now, we've already defined the love here as unconditional. It's not based on any merit of the one who your love is set on. It's not based on receiving back any love from that person. It's a covenantal love, a love that compels one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the object love. It speaks of a love that places value on the object loved and will love without a return of reciprocal love. It's, it's, it's his love that was demonstrated for us and while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He gave himself up for us. Everything about the love of or the leadership of the headship of Christ over the church is related to his, his dying of himself, his sacrificing of his life, and his giving up of himself. In fact, turn to a moment to Matthew chapter 20. To Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew 20, there's a discussion going on between the disciples, and apparently James and John's mom is asking Jesus if it's okay if her sons, James and John, sit at the right hand and the left hand of the Lord Jesus when he comes into his glory. And as you'd imagine, the other ten disciples weren't too happy about the request. And he states very clearly in verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, Jesus takes this as a teaching moment and begins to explain in verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How often are we as men taught this in regards to our marriages? That, that to be first, you must be a slave. And what part of giving of his life don't we really understand? We're told here in Matthew 20 that Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. He came to give himself as a ransom. He came to give himself as a payment. He laid down his life so that others can live. This alone 
changes the dynamic of any marriage where a husband believes that his wife's role is simply to serve him and to be available for his every whim and every desire. No, he's to look out for her, serve her needs, be concerned for her, not himself. It's clearly a life of self-sacrifice. And as you go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul is reiterating the exact same thing when he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That fragrant offering and that sacrifice to God was through his suffering and his death on the cross. It's what Paul states in Philippians 2 where the Lord Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And let me just say this again. Paul's not using Christ as an example here to say that husbands save their their wives from sin or sacrifice for their sin. But it does mean that the life of self-sacrifice that the Lord Jesus lived, the giving up of himself, that's the pattern for Christian husbands to follow. Now, we'll come back to that a little bit later. The Lord Jesus gave up everything for the church, and his leadership was one of sacrifice. Now, notice, secondly, he tells us exactly why. Why did he give up so much? And this gets into our second point, that a husband's leadership is a spiritual leadership. Why did the Lord Jesus love the church and give himself up for the church? And the answer is in verses 26 and 27. And you can see this by just following the word that in both these verses. We're going to follow the word that in both these verses. So why did the Lord Jesus love the church and give himself up for the church? Verse 26, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word. Why did the Lord Jesus love the church and give himself up for the church? Beginning at verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Why did the Lord Jesus love the church and give himself up for the church? Middle of verse 27. That she might be holy and without blemish. Right here, Paul's talking about the work of Christ on behalf of the church. And it's really a summary for what Christ does for believers from the time we're saved to the time we're glorified, from salvation to glorification. The moment you become a Christian believer, you're on this path of sanctification. Sanctification, we've mentioned before, is that ongoing process of a believer becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus through the ordinary means of grace, showing up for church, being involved with other believers, prayer, God's word, uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Through these ordinary means of grace, God works in and through a person as he dies to sin and becomes more practically what he is positionally. We said before that the moment you're saved, you're positionally righteous in God's sight, and for the rest of your life, he's conforming you into his image, making you practically what you are positionally. And this is what Paul is describing here in 26 and 27. The reference to having been cleansed by the washing of water, most commentators believe that Paul is referring here simply to baptism. 
that a Christian, a believing Christian is a baptized Christian. And if you're a believing Christian and you have not been baptized, you need to be baptized. Come and talk to me or Brad. The reference to the word is underscoring the truth that becoming more like Christ is rooted in being underneath the preaching and the teaching of a local church. We're being under the word of God. And as you move into verse 27, it's these baptized believers underneath the authority of the word of God who are learning and growing and the spots and the wrinkles of our former lives are being removed and ironed out as we grow more and more into holiness and without blemish. And it's this holy and this blameless bride that's been washed and cleaned up through salvation and this process of sanctification that Christ presents to himself on that final day of judgment. So what Paul's describing here is this complete work of salvation. Christ is the head. Christ is the savior of the church. Christ loves the church. He gave himself for the church. And he will sanctify and cleanse and wash and clean up and iron out all the wrinkles and eventually present the church to himself in a state of holiness and unblemished perfection. And if you're, a, if you're a believing Christian, this is the trajectory you're on. At least it should be. And as Paul takes this and applies it to marriage, he's saying that husbands, you are part of this process in the, in the life of your wife and family. Your leadership is to be a spiritual leadership. And we understand that because of the phrase in verse 28 when Paul writes in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That phrase in the same way is going back to verse 27 and telling us as husbands that we're to lead in the spiritual growth of our wives and families, the way Christ leads in the spiritual growth of his church. Now understand what I'm saying. This cannot mean that we as husbands are more spiritual than our wives. should get an amen from that one, I think. Because men and women are both part of the church. We're both part of the sanctification process. We're both part of being perfected. One's not above the other. So it's not implying that there's any kind of spiritual hierarchy. As if as the husband, I'm already sanctified, and my job is to sanctify my wife. Get that out of your head if that's even circling at all as if she's less than you spiritually. It's not what Paul's saying. We are both part of the process. It doesn't mean that she needs more help than you do in any of these areas of her life. It doesn't mean that you're the one who makes her sanctified and you're the one who makes her holy. It doesn't mean that you're going to present her before God one day. The Lord Jesus does all of this in the lives of believers. So his application to marriage is simply that husbands, we are to be the spiritual leaders in the home and we're to be part of facilitating this process. We're to be sure in the home that we are taking part of these means of grace. So men, husbands, God's calling us to be the spiritual leaders in our homes. And by the grace of God, we should do everything in our power to simply help in the process. Which means it's your job as a husband to be sure that your wife 
and your family are active participants in a local church, Christ-preaching, Bible-believing church. It's our job as husbands. It's your job as a husband to be sure that your home is framed by God's Word. It's your job as a husband to be sure that your home is filled with prayer. It's your job as a husband to be sure that you're involved in these normal means of grace so that your wife and family are moving into a trajectory that's seeing these spots and wrinkles removed, becoming more holy, blameless, prepared for final judgment. Now, you cannot make that happen, but you have to take your part to make those means of grace available. What are we as husbands doing? What are we doing to encourage the spiritual progress in our homes? What are we doing to promote and develop purity in our homes? Who's the moral compass in our home? Who is the one who says yes to these movies and no to these? Who is the one that initiates spiritual conversation who is the one who's more concerned about the kids spiritual well-being don't put that on your wife you lead the preacher said to himself in the same way christ is involved in the process from salvation to glorification you and i as husbands must be concerned and involved as well and don't miss Don't miss that it comes to the cleansing power of God's word. There's nothing mystical here. There's nothing magical here. Husbands, we just have to take the initiative to expose our wife and family to God's word. Attend church. Sit under the word faithfully. Fellowship with believers. Read the Bible. Read books about the Bible. Sing. Pray. Listen to the Bible. Under our leadership. It's having a home that's centered on Christ and His Word. Where where the principles of Deuteronomy 6 are put into practice. Some of you have started reading through the Bible plan we suggested in January, and if you did, you're in Deuteronomy right now in that first first few chapters, and you read Deuteronomy 6 this week. Go ahead and turn to verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It's the great Shema. Six four. Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. When you think of of talking about God's word, when you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk in the way, when you sit in the house, isn't that just all of our spare thought time? And when your mind is in neutral, God's reminding us to think on Him and think on His Word. I think in our 21st century culture, most of our spare time is social media. 
Most of our, share, our spare thought time is any sort of media, whether it's podcasts or Facebook or music. Yet the command here is for God's word to be so ingrained in our hearts that it's just natural. It's just natural to converse with our wives and our children about it. Which means that we should be the initiators of the conversation about God and his character and his word. So, so you can grow together, become holy together, become pure together. With the young children that are here this morning, it's such a blessing to see them. Sometimes it's as simple as starting out with you when you're holding them outside at nighttime, and there's the moon. And you say, who made the moon? And they say, God made the moon. It's having those thoughts on your mind when they're younger, and then as they're in teenage years, and the conversation comes around the dinner table about all manner of things today related to whether it's ethics or culture or the scriptures, all those things being part of the normal family conversation. The catechism we're going through on, on Sunday mornings is one other conversation starter. The Bible reading we started in the beginning of the year is a conversation starter. To my shame, and I, and I say from my personal experience over the years, and among most of the men I know, I, I can just say this is a tremendous weakness in us as men in general. Not in everybody, but in general. And at the end of the day, it's a heart issue because, because our conversations are a reflection of what's in our soul. It's a reflection of what, of what is in us and what drives us, what consumes us. Well, we could talk about fishing. We could talk about hunting. We could talk about our favorite sports. But we struggle sometimes with God and his word. And if we're not drinking from the wellspring of Christ, then we'll have nothing to share conversationally with our wife and our children. Some of us need to ask God to increase our thirst for him, increase our desire for him, increase our love for him, so that we can and will, in fact, take more and more responsibility for the initiation of these in our lives. Leadership in the home is a sacrificial leadership. Leadership in the home is a spiritual leadership. Now notice it's a whole-hearted leadership. I don't think that's the right word, but I, I kind of made it up. It's a whole-hearted leadership. It's the best word I could come up with, and you'll see in a minute. Uh, up until now, Paul's been very theological in his instruction to husbands. He's shown us that the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ as it relates to his life of self-denial, which it can be hard to get your arms around the self-denial of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. What does that really look like? Well, Paul goes from here, and he just makes it easy for us to grasp. Some would say the cookies are really low right here. You can grab onto these, and he makes it simple. Well, what does he say? Verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Everybody in here knows what it's like to love your own body. We can grasp this. We, we know what this means. What a great illustration, and I think an appropriate illustration. So if you didn't get it the first time, then he says it again in verse 33. Let each of you love his wife as himself. Well, how do we as men love ourselves? How do we love our bodies? Well, they get, we, hopefully we get the, the rest we need. We get the food that we need. When we're sick, we take care of ourselves. We give ourselves tender care. Uh, most of us are concerned about our appearance. We do shave from time to time. 
Hopefully we shower every so often. Hopefully we brush our teeth. Uh, I'm sure that all of you stare at yourself in the mirror from time to time. You've got your primping rituals. I don't, know what the, I don't know what they are. I don't really want to know what they are. And your wife is laughing at you every time you look at yourself in the mirror. As you get older, you start laughing at yourself as well. We get all that. We do love our bodies. We care for our bodies. And Paul's saying to the degree that we love and care for our bodies, we should love and care for our wives. And if there's any doubt about what he means, he goes on in verse 29 and says, No one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ as a church. That, that, that word nourish, it means to provide food for. It, it means to give adequate nourishment, to sustain. And we do this with our bodies. We, we eat right. We don't eat candy and, and junk all day. We get the sleep we need. If we don't, we get crabby. And, and on top of all that, um, we, ju- we just try to be balanced. We give our bodies what it needs. The word cherish means it means to treat with tender affection. It's the same word that's used when, when animals brood over their young or when, when chickens sit on top of their eggs. Uh, in fact, turn to 1 Thessalonians 2 because it's used one other time in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul uses this word. In verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Paul writes... 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. Paul writes, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Right there we could say cherishing her own children. That's the same word. A nursing mother taking care of her children. A nursing mother cherishing her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. When it comes to how we treat our wives, gentlemen, Paul's saying, do you know how a nursing mother cares for her infant? Now, if that's not something you're familiar with, the text helps us. Look at the words. She's gentle. She's affectionate. And she holds the baby close because her baby is very dear to her. It's just a lesson in how we should be treating our wives. I think we can say that a nursing mother anticipates her infant's needs. That a nursing mother is in tune with her baby's cries and coos. A, a nursing mother is, is rarely bothered to have to serve her baby. She's willing to lose sleep. She loses recreation. She loses leisure. She loses her time in order to, say, to serve her infant. Her entire life is wrapped up in that infant. And when you put the two words together, nourishes and cherishes, this is, I'm summarizing this as, as with that phrase, wholehearted commitment to your wife. Especially with that example of the nursing mom. The highest priority in a nursing mother's life is that of her infant. And she's made a wholehearted commitment to her baby's needs and will do anything that she can to meet them. There are men who have hobbies that they're far more committed to than their wives. 
Men who can't wait to get home from work to get in the garden or, or, or polish their car or work in the garage or, or get to their hunting spot or golfing or whatever. And their wives know it. I've heard a wife say that everyone gets the best of my husband, but all I get are the leftovers. Nursing babies don't get leftovers. They get the very best of their mom. If we love our wives as we love ourselves, if we nourish and cherish them as we do our own bodies, they will not get our leftovers. They will get our very best. These are not suggestions. These are commands. Now, every marriage is different. Every relationship is different. And how you and your wife flesh this out will be different than every other couple in this building, in the surrounding community. And, and don't think for a minute I am saying that a husband can't have hobbies, can't have interests outside his home or marriage. That's not what I'm saying. Or, 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 or that the minute you get off work that you've got to rush right home and stand at attention and, and give F your wife to, to, to give you something to do like you're a glorified butler. That is not what this is saying at all. That's not the role God's calling us to. So how you apply this is going to require time on your part to talk with your wife. You just need to ask her. Just ask your wife. Outside of the Lord Jesus, do you feel like you're the most important person or thing in my life? Outside of the Lord Jesus, do you feel treasured and valued? Outside of the Lord Jesus, what is the most important thing that I communicate to you that, that, that I, that, 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 of how I live my life? And if you ask the question, be prepared for the answer. Because the answer might be, ah, nah, your job is. Nah, your ministry is. Ah, I don't think I'm even number two or three, but you know what your family is. The kids are. Your boat is. Your golf clubs are. And if that's true, then ask her to forgive you. And ask her to give you some encouragement on what you can do to communicate nourishing and cherishing her. How can you love her the way you love yourself? That's a part of the conversation. Now she might say, she might say this, just be home when you're home. Turn off your phone. Communicate that you like to be with me. Just talk to me. She might say, just notice me when I'm struggling. Maybe I need your help from time to time, but you're oblivious to it. She might say, lead us spiritually. Pray with me. Let's read something together. She might even just say, just, can you just sit down for an hour and a half and watch a movie with me? Sit next to me. She might say, don't take the kid's side when I'm correcting them. Better than that, she might say, please correct them before I do. What's in your marriage that would demonstrate to your wife that you treasure her and value her and cherish her? And just by self-reflection, um, I'm guilty of all those things and more throughout my 40 years. And brothers, pray. Ask God to help you. Ask him to mold you into the husband that he's called you to be. 
The Lord Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, sacrificed his life for her. And Paul's admonishment is for you and I to go do likewise. And then finally, husbands are loving, or, or finally, husbands are to lovingly lead permanently. Permanently. Paul concludes his instruction here on marriage by referring us all the way back to the garden with God's original plan. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, after Jesus quoted the same thing in Matthew 19, Jesus went on to say, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Paul ends with a clear command to you and your wife to become a new and a permanent family. Now, we went over some of this earlier in the series, so I don't want to be redundant. But I think we can point out at least three commands here directed to the leadership of the husband and very critical to the establishment of marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother. You leave your parents, set up your own household. Some young couples have trouble leaving. Some parents have trouble letting their young couples leave. Uh, when my daughter got married, uh, I was confronted this on our wedding day of all time. We were on the fourth floor of the wedding reception and uh, been married maybe three or four hours. The reception's coming to a close and my daughter says, we're leaving. Well, I thought that meant that the other 50 or 60 people were there. We're all gonna get in the elevator together, go down to the bottom floor and we're gonna send them off in the, in the car that they were going to their honeymoon. And I said, oh, good, let's, come on, let's go. We're going to send him off. Courtney said, Dad, I said, we're leaving. Me and Daniel are leaving. We're going to get in the elevator, go down by ourselves, and go. I said, no, 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 no. There's about 60 people over here. We're going to get down there. We're going to send you. And my son-in-law, he didn't call me Dad then. He don't know what he called me. He just said, he said, we're leaving. We're taking her downstairs and leaving. I, <laughs> I said, whoa. Never had a discussion about it ever again since. Took him three hours to put me in my place. <laughs> now he's a good friend. God puts the responsibility on the husband to be sure that their marriage and relationship is established without interference. Many marriages where a conversation needs to take place, where the husband should initiate with parents to not meddle. Do it respectfully, honorably, graciously, but sometimes it needs to be done. Secondly, a man should hold fast to his wife means to stick like glue, means to hold firmly, hold tenaciously. It, it means that nothing will separate you. It's far more than a sexual union. It means nothing pries you apart. Two or one until death do you part. Marriage is not a trial. It's permanent. For better, for worse. Sickness and health, richer for poor and death to his part. It means divorce is not an option. So it means no matter how difficult and no matter how dark, marriage is for life. All of us who've been married at least a decade or maybe less than that, but when you've been married for a long time, will all tell you, I wish we could all talk to you young couples. I wish we could have a panel up here with people who've been married 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We will tell you, there are dark times and there are difficult times. But you made a covenant before God, so there's no talk of divorce. The two of you are stuck together and bonded together, and nothing comes between you. Now, beloved, 
There are ways to handle being married to an unbeliever from Scripture. There are ways to handle uh, someone who's disobedient to the Word from Scripture, and, and we don't have time to go through that right now. There's also biblical reasons for divorce. Marital unfaithfulness or an unsaved spouse once out. Those are other sermons in themselves. I just want to at least say to, uh, one thing in particular, that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. We're all sinners. We've all struggled at times. And whoever you're married to today is who the scripture applies to in your current marriage by the grace of God. We leave, we cleave, and we become one flesh. And that begins to take place when your marriage is consummated, but it, it continues for the rest of your married life. As you grow together, as you mature together, as you rejoice together, as you weep together, make plans together and dream together and get old together, and over time, have the wonderful privilege, the wonderful privilege of getting to know someone and them getting to know you at a level that you could have never imagined when you said, I do, however many years ago. And, and then Paul, like all of us, I think in verse 32, he, sa he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, loving one another, leaving, cleaving, one, it's a mystery. It's just a profound mystery. And yet the more we understand Christ and the love he has for the church and the more we understand how the church responds to Christ and the more we can understand this mystery it still comes back to our theology. And then Paul starts with this in this verse 32. He, he just gives a, a final summary, I think, of everything he said so far. And he starts with the word however. It's almost like a P.S., like, like he said, I know it's a mystery. However, here's your calling. Men, let each of you love his wife as himself. And I think that's just as practical as it gets. If I love my wife as myself, then I will fulfill everything in this passage. I will love her like Christ loves the church. I will give. I will sacrifice. I will die to self. I won't be harsh. I will lead her spiritually. I will bring the word of God and prayer and faithful church attendance into our marriage. I'll be concerned for her purity and her holiness. I will leave. I will stick like glue and I'll spend the rest of my life getting to know everything about her if I just obey that one verse. Then the second part of the summary, Paul ends, ironically, with our wives. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's an interesting ending, I think. He doesn't say wives respect. It says, let the wife see that she respect. In the NASB, it says, wives see to it that she respect. The NIV says the wife must respect. And, and I think he closes with this because he's put forward the standard. He's put the forward the standard for husbands to live sacrificially the same way the Lord Jesus did. It's something that God's conformation into, but guess what, ladies? None of you are married to Jesus. None of you are married to anyone that's even close to living like Jesus. Maybe you notice that. Maybe you notice that we're going to fail you. 
Maybe you notice that we're going to fail to love you. This is not an excuse. When we sin and fail, we should go to the cross for forgiveness. But we will fail to lead spiritually at times. We won't always nourish you. We won't always cherish you. We all battle with the world and our own flesh and the devil, and we are self-centered. We are sinners married to sinners, so we don't always meet the standard, do we? And Paul ends with this command to the wives because the command to respect your husband is not contingent upon him always fulfilling his role and responsibility or always behaving in a manner that deserves respect. Because he won't. He's a sinner. Paul didn't say, let the wife see that she respects her husband when he deserves it or when he loves and leads in a Christ-like way. Scripture commands you to respect your husband for the simple fact that he's your husband. And you made a covenant before God to love and honor him. He is the husband that God gave you, and when you can't respect his behavior, then you have to respect his position because God put him there. Respect is both inward and outward, isn't it? Showing respect has to do with both action and attitude. You ladies demonstrate how you respect by how you talk. You demonstrate it by how you speak to your husband. It's also demonstrated in your nonverbal communication. Whether you roll your eyes, shake your head. We all have ways of being condescending, don't we? We know have ways of belittling others, not respectful. You know, sometimes an exhale is louder than any words can even speak. Along with that, common sense tells us that when you yell at your husband, and some women do, when you name call, when you compare your husband to those you wish he would be like, when you openly complain about his income, station in life, how he makes or doesn't make decisions, all of those are very disrespectful. You show your respect when you're kind. You show your respect when you're patient. Truthfully, when you're living out all the things that Paul already commanded us earlier in chapter 3, right? Putting off anger and putting off wrath and malice and abusive speech. And you put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and love. Showing respect to your husband is a byproduct of setting aside the old self and putting on the new self. It's a byproduct of living a life that's pleasing to God. And the ultimate reason for this is it's a reflection of the love that Christ has for the church and the response the church has for Christ. So we're in the same boats. Similar to how a husband has to love his wife even when she doesn't deserve it, a wife is to respect her husband even when he doesn't earn it. That's at least part of the mystery. And yet by the grace of God, this should move humble husbands and humble wives closer to Christ to ask Him for help and closer to one another as we confess our sin to one another, admitting to one another how poorly we live this out and how thankful we are that by His grace we're still together, growing slowly, so, so slowly, it seems like, into the image of his beloved son. 
All around us are marriages that are in trouble. Even in the church. Inside the church, outside the church. There are couples who are not married. There are singles with benefits, have no intention of getting married. This is even prevalent in senior citizen communities. It's not in the teenage communities anymore. It's in young adults. Senior citizens as well. I read a while ago that in the UK, married people are becoming a minority group. And happily married people are probably even less of a minority. The people around you, who you rub shoulders with, may never darken a church door. They should at least be able to see the love of Christ on display in your marriage. Your unconditional love for your imperfect wife is a small picture of the unconditional love for us from God. And wives, your voluntary submission and respect to your imperfect husband is also a small picture of how the church is subject to Christ. And when those around you are aware that you're, that you're monogamous and faithful to one another, imperfect, who sin against each other and then forgive one another, who do not believe divorce is an option, who are committed to getting older together and caring for one another, even as our bodies aren't quite what they look like when they did when we walked down the aisle. And over the years, your love is deeper. Love that has weathered so many storms. A love that's rooted in Christ, grounded in Scripture, looking out for your spouse's welfare instead of your own. This is so foreign to the culture around us that believes that the only way I'll ever be happy is look out for me, look out for my and look out for I. Your love and commitment to one another really does put the gospel on display. The good news about Christ on display in a way that causes the unsaved world around you to just wonder. But it starts with Christ, a sinner. Married to a sinner. And he gives us the grace to love. The grace to not be harsh. And our wives, the grace to submit and the grace to respect. And it's Him working in and through us that will help us make it to the end in our marriages and in the Christian life. To Him be the glory. Amen.